0: Mitch Horowitz is a historian of alternative spirituality and one of today's most literate voices of esoterica, mysticism, and the occult. Mitch illuminates outsider history, explains its relevance to contemporary life, and reveals the long-standing quest to bring empowerment and agency to the human condition. Mitch is a writer-in-residence at the New York Public Library, lecturer-in-residence at the New York Public Library, and the Penn Award-winning author of books, including Occult America, One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life, The Miracle Club, and his latest,
1: The Miracle Habits. Mitch Horowitz, welcome to The Creative Process.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Uh, so you know your work, you're really a historian of the great spiritual ideas. In, in history, I mean, it's kind of hard to summarize what drew you to this quest and wanting to understand why and, and, and helping people.
2: Well, I've always considered myself a believing historian. And in fact, most historians of religion are actually believing historians. Very frequently they emerge from the congregations that they're writing about, whether new religious movements or traditional religions. This is true of the Kabbalistic scholar Gershom Sholem. It's true of people who have written probably the most important biographies of more recent religious figures like Mary Baker Eddy, Joseph Smith, a Mormon prophet. Although historians don't frequently acknowledge being believing historians because they feel that it might seem to compromise their capacity for critical judgment, but My impression is different. My impression is that actually being in proximity, very direct proximity, sometimes long-term proximity to the nature of the philosophical, religious, ethical, therapeutic movements that you're writing about can heighten your critical acumen. Uh, It can also heighten your sympathies, which is important for the historian as well. So I have always had a commitment uh, to what might be considered non-traditional or Alternative spirituality, which is to say forms of spirituality that aren't bound to any one particular doctrine or congregation. And in pursuing those ends, as an individual, I began to realize that the stories behind many of the pioneers of alternative spirituality in the West were not getting written. And if you don't write your own history, it gets written for you very frequently by people who may have no authentic understanding of the values and ideals that emanate from your movement, however fitfully they're realized. And so I really began my career, I suppose, as a seeker. And um, it led me to want to document metaphysics in history uh, and in practice. And that, that has occupied my time now for, I guess, 15 or so years.
1: I really like that expression, uh, a believing historian, and I really think it's important to speak up for. Um, you know, there's this kind of jargon in academia where it's only credible if it's distant from life, and it's so cited, but it's I, I don't I don't believe it. Like I want to believe because it, this, you're talking about people and people's lives and our experiences. And and sometimes in academia, things that are too personal, like you feel like you're too close to it. How do you really write about something unless you get close to it?
2: One always must make a declaration of outlook at some point or another. And and those who don't declare outlook aren't fooling anyone. You know, the outlook comes through. Now the the, the difficulty in covering recent religious figures. Is that we live in a world where we get to see how the sausages are made so to speak you know every religion is based upon some sort of supernatural claim at its base but when those supernatural claims are tucked away into antiquity no one is very concerned about the veracity of them when those supernatural claims are more recent questions of veracity are are brought to bear and when you're covering New religious movements, alternative religious movements, non-traditional movements. It's very, very easy to slip into a polarity of either uh, contempt or affection for your subjects. And and both have problems. Uh, I would say probably contempt is the greater problem of the two because it seems to silently announce itself on every page where every reference is... Is rendered with a sort of silent eye roll or a, a sarcasm or sardonic quality you know and i i have seen people write entire biographies of recent spiritual figures sometimes living spiritual figures for presses that are considered to be scholarly presses and they exude a undefined negativity towards their subject without ever stating the facts of why they feel that way, as though it's almost a given that we are to doubt or disdain or disapprove of people who make excessively therapeutic claims or perhaps claims that are considered paranormal or supernatural. If negativity or extreme criticism is warranted towards such figures, so be it, but state the case. To just assume as a given that that should be the position I think is a real failing of inquiry, you know, to, to, to start from a position of, of extreme belief or extreme disbelief is to start from your conclusions. And I think one should make some sort of a declaration as to one's outlook, because that declaration, whether it's plain or not, gets felt and understood by the reader. Uh, and I think it's, it's actually better for the historian or the journalist, you know, given depending upon what setting he or she is writing in. I mean, there there might be some some gradations there of how much you feel you can disclose or how much your medium allows you to disclose. But I do think that, that the writer, the documenter, the historical writer should make some sort of disclosure because those attitudes are there and there's no pretending that one doesn't have a position or a point of view.
1: And it's interesting, uh... Of course, uh, religious figures, as you pointed out, uh, more historic religious figures, their reputations and their experiences um, have been varnished over and by many great writers. So we Mm -hmm. get this, uh, you know, this work of art that's been perfected. And so what has your observation or reflections upon more recent uh, religious figures or religious movements uh, made you reflect on those historic depictions?
2: Well, in terms of more recent religious movements, particularly here in the United States where I live, it's impossible to get one's arms around current religious movements, including for example the prosperity gospel, without understanding that these movements are a, a mixture of sincerity and guile. They're not one or the other, and that's been true in American religion, as I would say, it's been in worldwide religion uh, for a long time. It's probably a truth that's as old as human nature. Uh, there is a mixture of sincerity and earnestness with opportunism and guile. That's the human situation. You know, The same could probably be said of politics. The same could probably be said of different cultural and social movements. And, and one has to understand that in religion. It's, it's very rarely all of one thing or all of another. And what I came to realize is that we tend to subject current or recent religious figures uh, to a great deal of scrutiny, which is entirely fine and should be the case, uh, in a way that uh, older or ancient religious figures are not subjected to. Now. To some extent, that's just a question of circumstance. You know, I can't know what Moses or Muhammad was doing, but I might feel like I can know what somebody in the late 19th century was doing, although it's kind of questionable. I mean, the question of what sources to trust and of how much gets lost in various kinds of translation or uh, reportage is a really big, big question. So we like to think that we can judge and, and, and surmise more recent religious figures uh, in ways that we can, ancient religious figures, I'm not sure it's always so neat and possible, but the simple fact is uh, we do hold the feet to the fire of more recent religious figures, and that's appropriate, that's appropriate. But it's important that it shouldn't be seen as this line of demarcation uh, that one form of religion, i.e. the traditional is serious, and another form of religion, i.e. the new, is at best novel and, and at worst, completely unserious. It, it neither position, you know, is, is the case. It's just that we're better able to scrutinize current religious figures. And so naturally we see, you know, we see the problems, we see the crises, we see the hypocrisies, we see the, the, the shortfall. It doesn't mean that one group is, is, is greater or lesser than the other, it's just a question of proximity.
1: And you mentioned, of course, you are in America, and you've written about this. Uh, of course, uh, America is a uh, unique instance. I think you've described it as a laboratory, and yeah, being a being a welcoming place, uh, as at least certain areas of it, for different religions to come together.
2: Yes, yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable, you know. I, I mean, this has been true of American culture, even going back to its colonial period. And it's very ironic, of course, because in in colonial america you, you had a, a, a nascent government that was sponsoring the slave trade that was destroying the native american civilization and while all that was going on you also had a, a a fairly remarkable degree of religious liberty and so you had people from the so-called old world you know crossing the atlantic and coming over to the the us colonies so that they could pursue their beliefs uh without harassment and and many did many did you know there were instances of mob violence there were instances of mob paranoia the most infamous of which of course was the salem witch trials in the 1690s but what was extraordinary about salem is that horrible as it was it was the exception there was not a witch craze for example that spread across the united states as one did across europe for centuries and centuries you know the last witch trial uh, said to have been conducted in, in, in Europe was in Switzerland in 1791, uh, a country that, that would be considered then as fairly wealthy society, you know, relatively speaking. You know, it wasn't a society divided by a depth of economic despair, uh, at least not you know, unique to the time. It wasn't a society characterized by extreme material want. Again, I'm speaking generally, of course. And yet, uh, a rural housemaid was tortured and beheaded uh, with with full judicial approval in Switzerland, laid into what was considered to be the Age of Enlightenment. And, um, and I think it's probably a misnomer that that was the last witch trial. There were other witch trials going on in Eastern Europe, and violence against witches, accused witches, is a worldwide problem today. It's something that I've written about. But the point that I'm trying to make is that... Um, While there have been instances of mob violence and persecution and there are problems and crises, by and large, uh, the United States, going back to its colonial period up to the present, has been relatively friendly to religious experiment and has proven a kind of springboard for uh, new religious movements around the world.
3: I really think that your perspective on Satanism kind of touches on this kind of controversial I don't know, moment within religious movements and I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that as a religion or movement that gets misconstrued
2: or Sure. It's a tough subject because the term Satan or Satanism in the western world is incendiary. It instigates, it it triggers and um it may be a term that's irredeemable. I'm not. I'm not really sure, but I've determined to find out, and we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how my experiment proceeds. My contention is that an esoteric, a very legitimate esoteric reading can be made of satanic tradition in the West, going back to Scripture, and that the the force, the energy that came to be characterized as the satanic in the Western world uh, has very often uh, proven from Genesis 3 onwards to be a force of uh, usurpation, reformation, revolution, anti-heroism, non-conformity. It's the force of the outsider, the rebel, the malcontent, the person who upends the standard order of things. Now, of course, there's also a different and more Polarized meaning that associates the satanic with everything that's evil and violent and maleficent, but I don't think that's Intrinsic to the ancient reading and I think there have been forces in Western culture including the romantic poets themselves uh, William Blake uh, Percy by Shelley a range of others including Lord Byron who viewed the satanic as this force of usurpation as this Force of rejection of stale, staid, or closed circuit thought systems. And so I've tried, both in terms of writing, history, practice, to highlight an esoteric tradition in the West that doesn't have any neat or clear family tree and that has no relationship whatsoever to the totally fraudulent and upended accusations that were made in the 80s and 90s in the United States and in Europe that are now framed as the satanic panic period, uh, where evil Satanists were said to be performing these horrible acts of abuse. All of that has been amply demonstrated, including very recently, to have been complete fraudulent hysteria without so much as a, a a burning ember, much less any fire behind the smoke. And it's tough for people to hear that sometimes because we're so acclimated by language and familiarity to want to believe something. But repetition is not evidence. You know, repetition is just cultural habit. And the fact is, you know, here in the United States, during the very period of the satanic panic, and it's very important to note this because I think it, it's, It's a foundational part of why a satanic panic developed as it did uh, in the U.S. during the very period of time that these grossly false accusations were being spread in the media, courts, law enforcement. You had authentic abuse scandals playing out in two pillars of mainstream cultural life, the Boy Scouts of America which has recently declared bankruptcy in order to protect itself financially from survivor lawsuits, and the Catholic Church, uh, within which there are more than uh, 20 uh, organizations or parishes that have likewise declared bankruptcy, either in response to or for protection from uh, survivor lawsuits. I don't say that to be incidental and I don't say that to make a comparison, not at all. It's fundamental to understanding the satanic panic and it's fundamental to understanding uh, religious and cultural prejudices in general and the insight it gives us if we're willing to avail ourselves of it is this when malfeasance is occurring within powerful or mainstream organizations that for various reasons can't be touched or that nobody feels they can appropriately question all of that tends to get projected onto outsiders so the outsider might be the witch in the medieval period might be the the Uh, The Satanist in the 80s and 90s might be someone else entirely today in the 21st century, but this is a pattern, again, that's as old as human nature. It's as old as human nature. And we need to turn a page on this. We need to turn a page on this. And we also need to understand that uh, Satanism as an ethical, religious, spiritual, intellectual, literary practice has been going on in disparate ways uh, in the Western world under various names. For centuries and centuries, and it's a failure of inquiry to not understand that as a religious movement.
1: Yes, it's it's interesting that uh, yeah, we often uh, scapegoat or we want to you know, determine something as being bad. I'm I'm interested in this other aspect of your writings, which is about the um, positive mind meditation and how we can, Mm -hmm. you know, really promote that. You were talking there about, you know, repetition and it's not a confirmation. And so many things that we might repeat to ourselves that we believe about ourselves aren't true, but they Mm -hmm. become settled. They do become true because we, we create this rut in our mind. Just tell us a little bit about your discoveries uh, in terms of positive thinking and and how that changed your own outlook and biases in your own mind.
2: Sure, Uh, I wrote a history of the positive thinking movement called One Simple Idea and it's funny in a way, you know, I mean the the manner in which I approach the positive thinking movement is not dissimilar from the manner in which I approach uh, Satanism as, as a, as an authentic religious or esoteric tradition. And that is that I felt strongly that there was something more there than had been uh, properly framed, uh, within most historicism, you know, the positive thinking movement here in the United States, sometimes it'll get called the power of positive thinking, the law of attraction, the secret manifesting, you know, these are some of the popular names that circulate and the truth is most serious people, whether you know in the arts or in journalism or in academia what have you most serious people are 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 brought up to think of this stuff as being squishy trendy shallow unserious you know it belongs on a refrigerator magnet somewhere but there can't really be a serious philosophy there that thoughts are causative and that if you think something, it comes to pass. And sure, maybe there's some psychological benefit to it, but there are too many buts to even take seriously there being a positive thinking movement or a positive mind movement. And whole books have been written in opposition to such a movement as it's perceived. And I determined that there was something else there, that the lives of the people who contributed to this movement uh, had roots that go back much deeper than is sometimes understood and had an effect on contemporary culture that is far greater in its sum and in its parts that's often understood and there are many things that we rely upon today including placebo studies themselves that would have been next to inconceivable uh, until well into the 19th century. Even concepts of a subconscious mind, a subliminal mind, an unconscious mind, they're so ubiquitous today. No one questions such things. And yet those terms themselves really didn't come into circulation until about the 1890s. Prior to that time, there wasn't a common reference point for there being a subconscious or unconscious mind. And a lot of people who experimented historically with the capacities of thought, the capacities of thought to do more than function on on a cognitive scale or a motor scale, but the capacities of thought to really function as a kind of engine in life, down to the nature of experience itself. They contributed vast amounts to how we now view ourselves as humans. And I also think that over the course of, say, 150 years of modern testimony and the, the deepening of how the mind or perspective is understood across a whole range of fields from psychology to medicine uh, to the hard sciences. There has been, I would say, an ever expansive perspective on the mind's causative abilities or on the gravity of perspective within every field that that, that has never retreated. That has never retracted itself or, or or been rescinded it's it's constantly expanding, and I think that the the purveyors of positive thinking philosophy did an enormous amount to open up the public mind to new possibilities about how we view ourselves and i'm not prepared to say that in their insights uh, they were they were wrong they had sublime insights, and they also it must be said, did a better job of popularizing themselves than of refining themselves. So we wind up with this perspective in some new age quarters, for example, that all of life is subject to one mental super law, sometimes called the law of attraction. And my contention is, as somebody who's sympathetic to these thought movements, that point of view is insufficient, is, is unhelpful, is unverifiable. But that doesn't mean that it needs to be dispensed with entirely. We can pursue questions of thought causation without buying into a kind of absolutism that can't be supported in the experiences and the self-verifying efforts of sensitive people, trying to get mainstream folks to see the positive mind movement as a greater, more substantial movement with a greater claim on serious people uh, than they may have understood. And i'm trying to get people within the positive mind movement within the new age culture with whom i'm in very close contact to not settle into a kind of new age orthodoxy or doctrine of their own and let this movement which william james called the religion of healthy mindedness continue to grow you know the movement needs a theology of suffering the movement needs to acknowledge issues that are unique to our times like end of life issues the movement needs to acknowledge Uh, global pandemics or national disasters or civil wars without hemming itself into this impossible position that everything is attributable uh, uh, to thought alone. Whereas indeed we experience many laws and forces of which thought is one aspect. So this is another area where I'm trying to thread a needle. And the needle I'm trying to thread is that neither mainstream folk nor new age folk have. Fully capture this very, very, very important movement, and I'm trying to frame it, contextualize it differently, both in history and in practice.
1: Yes, I think we have to listen to all the good ideas that are out there, and then, of course, be open to you know criticize or try to improve. Um, but I think any any movement that is trying to, without causing suffering of others, but is trying to uh, allow us to like self realize and have that self-agency you know and not say you know happiness and peace is something i get in the afterlife if we believe in that yeah. Yeah. but we can have it here or we can have a portion of it here um I, th- I think that that's good but it's true it has suffered from a criticism for p- people feeling that it lacks seriousness or just turns a blind eye to some other realities as you say like end of life or suffering.
2: Like right that. and i think there is truth to that you know i mean what i always say is that the. The critics are right but they're not right enough you know they don't they don't go far enough they they're correct in pointing out the shortfalls of these movements but they never ask themselves shortfalls included in my perspective you know what what of great value have these movements offered and it doesn't even occur to many serious people to ask that question and that's a failing that's that's a failing
3: you talk a lot about the mind as god and i was wondering if you could explicate that and also distinguish that use of God from like a more, I don't know, Abrahamic notion of God or what that means to
2: you? That's a wonderful question. One of the contemporary religious figures who's most meaningful to me, who I have a tattoo of over here, is a man named Neville Goddard. He was a British Barbadian uh, mystic who uh, uh, spent most of his life uh, in the United States, died in 1972. And um, when I first started writing about Neville, he, he wrote and spoke under his first name. Uh, when I first started writing about him, wow, I guess going back to 2005, he was a completely obscure figure. Uh, he had died in relative obscurity. His books were available, but in a very, very small number of places. And I've since watched as Neville has become one of the most popular New Age thinkers of our time. And if you throw the name Neville Goddard into Google, uh, you'll be amazed at the vast number of references and lectures and writings that come up. And Neville was a uniquely compelling figure. I think um, there's so much that could be said about him, but the simplest way of putting it is his teaching uh, was, in essence, your imagination is God. That everything that you see and feel and experience, including the words I'm speaking right now, is you uh, pushed out into the world and, he contended that everything that we experience results from our own emotionalized thoughts and mental images concretized into reality. And so again, you know, if one follows his teaching, uh, it would fall upon the uh, the viewer, the listener, to consider that there is no Mitch here. There's no Mitch speaking. Uh, this is you, the individual. This is, I am merely a figment of your thoughts pushed outward. And it just so happens that you were ready at this given moment to hear these ideas. and I'm just a, a a vehicle for that. I'm one of your own mental pictures, and so that was Neville's contention. And of course, one immediately wants to argue with it and say, "Well, what about this? What about that?" But one of the things I've written about is that he was so elegant uh, in his ability to defend this this extreme uh, idealism, I suppose you could call it. He delivered thousands of lectures across his lifetime, which he allowed to be freely. Uh, recorded. I mean, the technology didn't really become common until the late 1960s, so most of the lectures are towards the end of his life, but he permitted all of his presentations to be recorded. And in so doing, it made him, you know, culturally immortal. Uh, the recordings were turned into these, you know, digitized and, and and started popping up on the internet as soon as there was an internet. And now he's listened to all over the world. He's He's one of the most Uh, widely listened to spiritual voices of the 21st century. And it's interesting for a a man who died in in West Hollywood, you know, a happy but fairly obscure figure. And I've written extensively about Neville. I found him just a great spiritual troubadour and and a remarkable person. Um, You know, I'll say this, there aren't many writers, there aren't many writers who can write about inner experience and really capture people's attention. Very, very few. Maybe that was true of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Maybe that was true of Jiddu Krishnamurti. Uh, But very, very few writers are capable of documenting inner experience and and really attracting people's attention. And Neville had this unique capacity over the course of thousands of lectures and ten books and different statements to restate his thesis over and over again. And it always sounded fresh. It always sounded fresh. And it's worth pausing over that, you know, to summon that um, as a writer, as a religious thinker, as a philosopher, to restate one's thesis over and over and over over the course of a lifetime and have it always sound fresh is is quite rare. And um, Neville had that ability to make an audacious statement and to defend it. And I've written that I think he also created the greatest mystical analog to quantum theory. Now, a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, the minute they hear, you know, quantum theory, you know, they feel their blood pressure, you know, starting to starting to rise, because some people feel like uh, New Agers have cherry picked and hijacked very complex ideas from quantum theory, rendered them very simplistic, so on and so forth. I would ask for patience. I would ask for patience. I think there is a really very legitimate conversation to be had between serious students of physics and serious students of metaphysics. And that conversation is emerging and it is going on. It's not always stereotypical. It's not always caricatured. You know, I think most mainstream folk who care about such things uh, need to be more patient. They're too quick to judge uh, the new Age or cherry picking through quantum theory and making believe that Perspective is somehow this force, and they feel very frustrated that that's a cheapening of complex ideas. The truth is, most people who are frustrated with that are, uh, if I may say, bloggers and journalists. I mean, they're not scientists themselves. The scientists themselves uh, very often tend to be uh, vastly more um, approachable, patient, and astonish themselves at what ninety years of experiments in quantum theory have have brought to bear on. on on the human psyche and on human awareness. And I think Neville, if one is looking for a spiritual voice that expands upon and drops really extraordinary questions into uh, this mix, uh, he created the most elegant spiritual adjunct to quantum theory without having intended to. That's also what's remarkable because a lot of Neville's writing, and I'm thinking specifically of stuff he was doing in the late 1940s, Occurred before the popularization of these ideas, and when one encounters the congruities, depending on the Mujerin, it could be it could be an extraordinary uh, journey. So he's he's been an influence on me, but within Neville's way of thought as well, I'm challenged, you know, by the absolutism, and I I contend that whether or not the psyche or awareness or perspective or consciousness or whatever you want to call it, whether or not that's the ultimate arbiter of reality, a very big question, which we'll leave for another time, uh, we experience many different laws and forces, and uh, such as mortality, to which there's never been an exception. And so people who are sympathetic to Neville's ideas, as I am, also need to contend with the multiplicity of experience. And I don't think it's sufficient to speak in terms of all experience as subject to thought, even if that that is ultimately true, a topic for another conversation. As with gravity, for example, you know, that's a consistent law, but it changes based upon mass. You know, water is always water, but it changes form from vapor to solid based upon a temperature surrounding circumstances you know. so that's what all laws are like all laws are consistent but we experience them differently based on surrounding circumstances so if one is willing to cut me the slack of saying okay you know thought is, is, is causative and I'm not trying to defend that so much as to say you know one could put that out there as a popular belief which I place stock in it's also going to be experienced in radically different ways based upon circumstances so even in the system of Neville, which I find so elegant and which I love, there has to be room for for growth, for refinement, for saying no to this, yes to this, maybe to this, because life is just so unwilling to be subject to any, any one law in its experience.
0: I was first introduced to Mitch's work about a year ago, and I had heard him speak on some podcasts and I just feel like he really provided a voice for the current spiritual movement that I really resonated with. I remember when I bought his book The Miracle Club I was kind of at a point in life where I personally felt conflicted about my own spirituality and I was kind of looking to New Age practices, but also critiquing them at the same time because I felt like they were very tone deaf and mostly geared towards a kind of white spirituality that has kind of been appropriated for many years. And I just kind of needed something with a little bit more nuance. And I just really like his approach to like throw everything at a problem and try anything and see what works because there are no rules and that just was very inspiring to me and made me feel like i didn't have to limit myself in terms of what i desired or what i wanted i think that he also bridges a really important gap between science and religion that people are really quick to dismiss i think that as a religion major a lot of what we talk about is how religion itself is actually a word that was created by western culture and it's kind of become this term that has driven away a lot of people because it's so tethered to the institution of religion and um, it can be very prejudiced towards certain people but actually religion It's just kind of this broad term that is a way of kind of trying to describe what's happening culturally. When we're really talking about religion, we're really talking about like meaning and how communities ascribe meaning to certain practices or rituals. Religion doesn't have to be tied to a god or some higher power. It can just kind of be the way that you see the world and that's why I think that understanding science as kind of a form of religion is a really interesting way to to approach looking at two subjects that seem in contradiction with each other but they're actually just kind of two sides of the same coin if we can use religion as a as a lens uh, through which we look at different subjects and issues i think that it can be a really powerful way of just understanding how people have different perspectives on what is important and what is important to them and the way that Mitch bridges the gap between science and religion I think is really important because we can begin to look at science through the lens of religion as opposed to putting these two enormous communities in contradiction with each other because you really you can't put science into a box and you can't put religion into a box because both are such nebulous terms for what may or may not be happening in the world. And I find science to be super spiritual. And I think that for many people who are passionate about science, it's it's a very moving and deep and intimate connection that they feel with the world. It's just through the lens of science. And I think the ways that people feel very bonded with the terms science or the term religion are honestly two very similar feelings and ways of feeling passionate about life and the world and just reality itself because it's so fascinating and we really just have no idea what's happening ever, but we're all kind of trying to figure it out. And so I think it's really important to try and bring some harmony between these two communities because they really have a lot of overlap. And I think that we're at a moment where people are hungry for community and hungry for some kind of identity maybe a spiritual identity maybe some other kind of identity but particularly in america we're just so individualistic and untethered and very ungrounded it's a very divisive time and i really think that The ability to explore one's spirituality and have the freedom to create one's reality or or think that we're creating one's reality is a really liberating thing. And I'm really excited that there are more people like Mitch who are bringing dignity back to this movement that has kind of been critiqued for a while, and rightly so, but I think that it's really amazing to like hear voices that are emerging who bring a lot of nuance and interesting perspective to the field
1: uh, yes i love that expression uh the imagination is god and and, and i couldn't agree more with what you're saying about you know being able to listen to all the complexities and the different voices and and i guess why i like that expression is i'm an artist and you know a lot of artists or writers um, They may be even atheist or agnostic, but then when you start to ask them about their creative process or where do they get their ideas, they speak in ways that are very, you know, it's like a vision or just something that came to them. You know, they, yeah, it's the same language. (laughs) You could be talking about the same thing, but they won't call it God. It's, it's just the story emerges or the music or the, or the art emerges. So how do you feel that the arts, I mean, particularly in um, attendance in churches uh, may be down, but how do you feel that arts may help us understand the mind of God or how the imagination might bring us closer to the essential mystery?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. I, uh, in terms of my own creative experience, which is expressed through writing primarily, and through public speaking or lecturing. I, I have found that enthusiasm and passion, uh, whatever that is and wherever specifically that comes from, has been a driving force that has allowed me to do things that I would never have thought possible if the question were put to me in, a, in an objective way. I'll never forget the experience that the day that my second son came home from the hospital after birth. He's seated in the next room. Maybe he'll hear me. I remember he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know, this was a newborn infant on uh, the sofa uh, in our Manhattan apartment. And this was in uh, January of 2007. That day that we brought him home from the hospital following birth was the day that my very first uh, book contract arrived at the house You know, by messenger. And you know, I'm looking at this baby in swaddling clothes on the couch and I'm looking at the book contract that I'm holding in my hand and I'm saying, wow, this is really gonna be some year, you know? And I'm overjoyed and I'm thrilled, but I have no idea how any of it's gonna get done. Well, it did get done, it did get done. And you know, that that, that goes back oh, some odd, you know, close to 15 years ago, you know, and it, it did get done. I never, I never could have told you the hows or the whys or the ways, you know, people say to me to this day, you know, where do you find time to write? How do you manage your life? Don't you sleep, et cetera, et cetera, because they, they see my output as being very prodigious and I'm busy all the time and, and all that's true. And, and I couldn't tell you, you know, I couldn't tell you X, Y, Z, you know, how I do it. You know, I couldn't recount to you, well, I schedule things this way. I mean, yeah, there are certain principles, but the passion and enthusiasm that I feel for it, it feels like a force. And it's and it's inexplicable, you know. It's 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 inexplicable, and um, one of the difficulties with materialist culture is that it engenders a kind of binary thinking. You know that everything must be traceable back to this synapse firing in the brain or you know this neural pathway or or this biochemical well there's probably all kinds of things going on at once you know it may be that passion enthusiasm or for that matter uh, the religious appeal you know or for that matter hopeful expectancy or whatever one calls the mental appeal it it looks a certain way in the body it has certain correlates in the body but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only game in town that's the only thing that's going on you know there can be all kinds of things that that are, that are going on, and I, I really feel that individual testimony is very, very important. We rely on an individual testimony all the time for all kinds of things, including the efficacy of psychopharmacological drugs. You know, for that matter, we don't have a full idea of how some of these things work, but we rely upon the experience of the subject. Likewise, in spiritual life, in in cultural life, in in ethical life, you know, it really matters what people are experiencing. There might be certain correlates in the body. But that's not the only thing going on necessarily. And what I experience when I speak of, of passion, of enthusiasm, are those things as a force, as an actual force. And it's quite remarkable. And when they're absent, you know, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't quite say helpless, but, you know, I do not get very much done. You know, it's a slog. And when they're present, I get things done that I really, truly had you asked me to budget my time, for example. You know, how will this work? What will this look like? How are you going to do this? Well, the only reasonable answer that would come back is, it's impossible. You know, I'm raising kids, I'm writing books, I'm giving talks, I'm doing this, that and the other thing. It's impossible. It's impossible. There's no grid that would bear out these tasks, you know, getting done and done well altogether. There's no grid. And yet they do get done. And, 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 and I experience passion and enthusiasm as, as a force. There's a mystery in, in, in some of that.
1: And you said there, yeah, there is a mystery. I don't, you know, I guess it's just love and we don't know how we tap mm-hmm. into it. And so when you mentioned, you know, when those things are gone or perhaps let's say you're facing a difficult moment or, or grief or, a loss or, or something when, you know, when you need to summon those things, what do you turn to? What or who or is there a thing you say to yourself I know this is private, but
2: no, no, it's uh, I welcome it. I I do believe in visualizations, affirmations, uh, prayer. I do believe in trying to establish relationships with different deific forces. Uh, I think our ancient ancestors uh, were were onto something in in that respect. Um, I. I'm very interested in the uses of affirmations, visualizations, mental suggestions, prayer, during a period of time known as hypnagogia, which is the very relaxed state that you enter into. Just before drifting to sleep at night, you enter into it again in a slightly different way just as you're coming to in the morning. The mind is in a very supple, very suggestible phase at that time. We haven't talked about psychical research or ESP research. I'm very interested in, and I'm a defender of, academic uh, psychical research. I think that's another area that has been misunderstood, poorly represented, and sometimes polemically mangled within the mainstream that has a great deal to offer. Uh, And and as such, that research is going to keep experiencing uh, periods of of resurgence. Uh, We're probably about to enter one right now. And um, serious psychical researchers have found that uh, hypnagogia is a prime time, so to speak, for psychical or ESP related activity. Again, I say that with full awareness that any number of listeners are going to roll their eyes and say, what are you talking about? Wikipedia says right here, that's all nonsense. And, and I understand that. But again, you know there, there, there are fields and inquiries that it behooves serious people to take a second look at. Never find yourself in a place in life where you can't take a second look. There's a, a real uh, degradation of the intellect when you hit a place where you can't take a second look. That doesn't mean not having standards. I I have standards and there are certain lines of thought, particularly those that objectify or dehumanize other people that I I reject roundly and and firmly. So it's not to release the reins on standards, but if you have your standards and if you know what your standards are and you apply your standards, then you have to ask yourself at the same time, where am I willing to take a second look? And so psychical research or ESP related research is someplace I would encourage thinking people to take a second look. So forgive me, I'm, I'm going off a little tangentially from where we were, but I'm saying this in the service of pointing out that my spiritual practice, when I speak of uh, prayer, uh, visualization, uh, affirmation, uh, suggestion, meditation, uh, my contention is that these things are not just uh, psychological or cognitive exercises, but that there is an extra physical uh, quality of the mind, which can be very elusive and very hard to track. But um, but I do believe that quality is there, and I do believe it it, it asserts and presents itself in different settings and, 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 and frameworks. And so I think these exercises, as such, are spiritual exercises. And By spiritual, I mean extra-physical.
3: Yeah, I was wondering, I, I feel like a lot of people who struggle maybe seeing results um, with these practices, perhaps, I don't know, struggle figuring out what actions to take. And I was wondering, yes. kind of
2: talk about that a little bit. Well, one of the things I like to encourage people, and I've written about this more in my works of practice, including a book called The Miracle Club, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people within the alternative spiritual culture, and sometimes within the mainstream uh, culture, uh, spiritual cultures as well, um, I think they get torn in two by a false premise that there is this greater, unseen, invisible life, this higher, more essential existence where the individual is non-attached and non-identified. And then there's this coarser, lower form of life where the individual is grasping and grabbing for things and selfish and seeking temporal pleasures and so forth and so on. And I really question that paradigm. I think that has been a problematic thought habit that got introduced into Western thought and some Eastern thought, and it gets propagated by repetition so that we always think in terms of higher and lower, whereas these things are actually completely artificial, you know, I mean, from a physical standard, as well as I would say from a standard of the psyche you know i mean show me if you ask me you know where's up you know point up well i'll do that of course but one of our friends watching you know in another part of the globe has an entirely different experience and pan the camera back and you know there's obviously no no up or down there's mass you know and and something called gravity attracts mass to itself so we understand that but wherever that point of attraction is we say well that's down right that's my my feet on the floorboards right now of my apartment and up is wherever the effects of gravity aren't felt but it's just artifice right and and so i believe that the same is true in terms of the psyche in terms of the spiritual search by which i mean you know the search for self the search for self-expression you know really and Who's to say, you know, where this dividing line uh, begins and ends between personality and essence, between attachment and non-attachment, between worldly and temporal, you know, isn't it all really one thing? And I think sometimes people get torn in two on the spiritual path because they feel this intense hunger for something that they may want in their lives, whatever that may be, whatever that may be. And sometimes they're told, well, you know, that's illusory, that's samsara, that's that's, uh, maya, that's... Uh, illusion, attachment is the source of suffering, and so on. And I would say, verify these things for yourself. You know, be very, very brave and be very, very determined. And when someone tells you that the source of all suffering is attachment, well, that's a hallowed idea. And I respect the emergence of that idea from Vedic culture, from early Christian culture. I respect it. But I would also challenge the individual to apply and verify it in his or her own experience, because I, I also believe I also believe that every religion known to humanity, it grew out of very specific cultural circumstances. It doesn't mean that the ancient faiths do not have universal principles. Clearly, uh, they do. I think we could all defend that. But it also doesn't mean that they weren't conditioned by the needs and circumstances of the time and place from which they emerged. So, if you have A religious faith, for example, that's emerging from a society that had a a deeply stratified caste system in which no individual could possibly hope to conduct a way of life that was different from the, the definition into which he or she had been born. A religion could serve to address that circumstance, that situation. And it is a circumstance, it is a situation. Today, many people in the 21st century, far from everyone, but many people in the 21st century do, in fact, experience uh, mobility or changes or differences and might lead out a life or an existence that's actually quite different from the, the, the category into which they were, they were born in any number of ways. I think it behooves us to understand that every religion is the work of human hands you know, there's there's no exception to that and as such it's going to reflect and grow out of cultural circumstances and it falls to every individual to apply religious ideas to determine in fact what's cultural, what's universal and 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 or, and, or whether you know it's simply unclear what which is a perfectly legitimate place to come to but I guess what I'm really saying is I know people approach spiritual the spiritual search with very deep needs you know sometimes they're suffering from anxiety grief depression addiction sometimes you know quite frankly they're suffering from a lack of money sometimes they're suffering from material want and i i want people to be able to explore uh, the path of self explore the spiritual path whether you consider that extra physical or ethical or any number of such things therapeutic and not feel that they're getting dictated to what they should be looking for or what the ending should be. You know, I was very touched by something that was said on social media by a psychiatrist, uh, psychologist rather, I don't know, maybe about a year ago. And it, it caused a lot of controversy as things do on social media. But I thought she had a lot of integrity in saying it. She said, look, you know, I've been practicing therapy for such and such a number of years and I believe in its efficacy. But I have to admit that about seventy percent of people who come to see me are, are suffering from uh, just simply need more money. They need more money in their lives. And of course, you know some people reacted to this with great umbrage and were offended, and other people said, "Wow, you know, thank God somebody was finally brave enough to say it, courageous enough to say it." And you know, it's a provocative comment, but I thought. Let's at least give it a chance to breathe. You know, let's give it a chance to breathe. I mean, all I'm saying is I, I'm not speaking in terms of percentages, but I know that people approach the spiritual path with with needs, material needs, psychological needs, and maybe also needs in terms of self, self-image, self-expression, how they're understood by others. They may feel a terrible, terrible um, lack of self-respect. These are real things. And I want people to feel a great freedom when they approach spiritual ideas. I mean, a great freedom. You know, I've tried to, in my own way, um, and, you know, people can judge me a success or a failure in this regard, but, you know, we've been talking about positive thinking, we've been talking about something called Satanism, usually very poorly defined. I'm trying to bring a different definition to it. I've tried to tear the lid off these things so that they're not so easily packaged and conceptualized, because I want myself and, and those who are on the path with me to feel very free in terms of exploration.
1: And you've certainly helped to free our minds and to allow us to explore these, um, as you put it, the secret teachings of all ages. So I was wondering, as you reflect in, and we've written about you know you know one simple idea, as you reflect on the different teachings the the different religious leaders and movements, and the simple idea or the the beautiful shining thing that you found there. if you could you give us a tour from this great buffet of of world faiths that you've imbibed
2: well i'll I'll offer a, a few different observations that I live by in my own life and work, and people can decide whether they want to try them out. As I was alluding earlier, I do believe our ancient ancestors had something to offer when they identified, personified, deified different energies within nature and sought a petitioner relationship with those energies. Um, I wouldn't be too quick to rush to the conclusions that polytheistic societies that in in which death was a very palpable presence, their their members uh, for thousands of years had a profound attachment to nature and I think their capacity for identifying functions within nature that are not often taken uh, for granted uh, by us contemporary people uh, deserve a second look and I think that seeking relationships including petitionary relationships with uh, personified or deified energies is a path that warrants the attention of the spiritually searching person uh, today I do believe that to some greater uh, or lesser measure thoughts are causative based on condition and circumstance. Um, I made fleeting reference to psychical research, fleeting reference to quantum theory. Uh, I could make other reference to emergent fields today such as neuroplasticity which demonstrate through brain scans that sustained thought actually alters the neural pathways Uh, through which electrical impulses travel in the brain. You know, I think there are are extensions uh, within the field of placebo studies that have proven extraordinary, that have pushed placebo studies far beyond uh, where even the progenitors of the field as it emerged after the Second World War uh, could have imagined. And I think that it, it, again, it's, it's entirely up to the individual, but my contention is that the mind causation thesis, the contention that thoughts are causative, carries water and it's going to change be experienced very differently under different circumstances and it is not it does not provide a single answer to anything in life as nothing does but I think that contention is is really truly worthy of experiment I believe that sometimes extra physical experience or the correlation of thought to causation can be experienced over very 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 long periods of time and I would encourage people um, to be very, very broad in perspective in terms of looking at their lives from the 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 period of their earliest their earliest memories, their earliest retained cognition, and bravely bravely probe whether there is not a congruency, barring some extreme countervailing measure which does occur, whether there's not congruency between the life you're leading uh, today and your earliest, earliest retained cognition. It can be just extraordinary in terms of fantasies, dreams, recurrent thoughts, things of that nature. And I, I, I feel, you know, as as I was also alluding earlier, that it, it really falls to every uh, generation of seekers to verify and and to never use the term verify as a slogan. You know, I remember one night I was seated in a very in a spiritual circle, a spiritual meeting of some very senior and, and 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 deeply intelligent people within the certain philosophy. And I asked a certain question and one of the senior members of the group, uh, he misheard my question and he said to me, well, there are no shortcuts, there are no shortcuts. And allowing for the fact that he had misheard my question, I thought, well, wait a minute, let me stay with that. you know how do i know there are no shortcuts you know how does he know there are no shortcuts how do we know there aren't accelerants you know on the path i mean how do we know that you know again we embrace such ideas because they're incredibly familiar repetition is not insight you know, familiarity is not truth which is why i'm really trying to tear the lid off of some of these neat categories into which we've divided the search i don't know that there aren't shortcuts maybe an epiphany is a shortcut maybe a conversion experience Uh, is a shortcut. And for that matter, you know, maybe a wish itself is a shortcut. Maybe a wish held with a unique intensity, maybe that is a a kind of of shortcut. Maybe that delivers us someplace. So I really want people to to verify in a way that elevates that term, that that never just uses that term in some familiar habitual way. Because a lot of traditions say, you've got to verify things, but usually what's really occurring is, you know, go you know verify and as soon as you come to exactly the same point of view as i have come back and then we'll move on to the next chapter and i don't mean that you know so so i'd say that um, i really want us to 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 experiment with extra physical capacities i really want us to experiment with primeval uh, spiritual ideas obviously these things have come down to us only in fragmentary ways today so we're at a disadvantage but but parallel insights do occur, you know, across great stretches of time. And I want people to feel very, very at liberty uh, to experiment with, with different religious ideas. This is, this is the moment to do it, you know, if, if not now, when? Because depending on where you live, and that's a big dependency, but depending on where you live, you, you, you may have access to a greater range of ideas, translations, possibilities than anyone at any time in history. Uh, use it. Use it.
1: And finally, you mentioned, you know, you have a 15-year-old son and we have thoughts of the future, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation is weighing heavier in our mind, particularly this pandemic year. Um, You know, as you think about the future, as you, you know, the advice uh, to your son and, you know, the various systems that we have to change, what would you like uh, young people to know, preserve and remember?
2: Well, I, I, have, I have two teenage sons, so I, I do think a great deal about the world that they're entering and that they're going to inherit. The level of vitriol that occurs online uh, will destroy us, I think, if we don't turn a corner in terms of human discourse. And um, I have told uh, my kids, as I would say to anybody, some number of us, starting right now, <laughs> have got to turn the tide on the, the sarcasm, the rhetorical questions, the spite, the cruelty that exists online. I mean, what is online? You know, it's, it's 90% of our social life. It's 90% of our work life. You know, there is no public square anymore. COVID has only accelerated what was already happening. Uh, we dwell in social media, spend vastly more time there than we do among people we love or among people we work with or among people we live around you know that's 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 where we live you know uh it may be in in you know one or two dimensions right now but that's where we live and if we don't uh, get away from vitriol snarkiness sarcasm uh, rhetorical questioning contest on social media uh, we will not make it we simply will not make it and it it has deteriorated life in ways that i've never witnessed you know it's always easy to ask why are people so attached to paranoia why are people so attached to conspiracy theories why are people so attached to nationalism why are people you know attached to you know disinformation about vaccines and you know things like that and one could say oh sure you know there's any number of social culprits economic culprits You know, people will talk about crises of meaning, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is, the truth is, uh, human nature is is pretty consistent. I don't think human nature has changed. But what has changed is that everyone with an angry comment to make has a 24-7 open mic night. And we have never experienced that before in all of history. Uh, I mean, just imagine how different this must be from antiquity where it might have taken... I don't know how long you know for somebody to even get the news that a monarch had died, you know and now uh, you know somebody has a point of view about something and, and he or she you know can have a following almost instantly. So human nature is constant, but 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 our ability to interact with one another has changed, I think communication perhaps more radically in the last uh, generation than in, than, than in all generations up to that point, and we are not up to the task. We are not up to the task, and we will destroy ourselves if we don't get in front of this um, venomous, persistent uh, contest that plays out online between people wanting to humiliate one another, which is usually what it comes down to. And uh, I'm not hopeful, you know, about this. I'm not hopeful about it, you know. But I also do believe that if just some fraction of us can step back from it, uh, that at least opens the possibility because it elevates some sort of an example or, or some kind of sense of belonging that people can feel that doesn't involve humiliating or, or, or besting or, or vanquishing you know, some, some other person. So it's really just a plea for civility online. It's vastly more radical and more difficult uh, than, than, than it may seem to first appear.
1: Oh, I think that's a really important message. I mean, uh, we need to, as you said, and we have to cultivate these positive habits of mind. And that we we know how to do indulge in the negative habits of mind. But uh, definitely, as we face so many challenges in the future, we have to work with greater collaboration. And as you say, if we could learn from nature, if we could just look, learn from the birds and the, their murmuration in the sky, they're all working in harmony. They're all moving. They're not trying to, you know, peck each other out of the sky.
2: And yeah, and, um, and it doesn't and forgive the interruption, but it, it doesn't mean abstaining from critical thought either by any means. You know, I, I would challenge people. In terms of your online discourse for the next 24 hours, uh, try, to, try not to use the device of a rhetorical question, which is anything but a question. It brutalizes what a question is supposed to be, It's hostility. It's hard. You know, it's hard because we've become so accustomed to it. I, I apologize for the interruption. But it doesn't mean re- re- releasing criticism. It means releasing devices.
1: Oh, exactly. No, I, I, I welcome uh, the interruption because it's really more of a confirmation of, you know, just these, these positive habits of mind that you've been so good at outlining and cultivating and sharing with others. So thank you, uh, Mitch Horowitz, for showing us pathways, for realizing our potential through causative thinking and sharing with us the teachings of all ages so that we might lead lives with more meaning and purpose. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
2: Thank you, Privileged to be here. I appreciate it.
1: The
0: Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Austin Hansen. The Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you so much for listening.